I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. So the superintendent began a report last night by thanking Will Austin and the Boston Schools Fund for their contribution of over $2 million to improve student outcomes in BPS across about a dozen schools. She also then thanked the mayor and school committee for their support. So last night, Superintendent Skipper noted that the on-time performance, and this is just morning performance, buses getting to school on time in the morning is up to 89%. It's up one more percent from October. So it was 88% in October. The state mandate was 95% by October. So clearly the district is still not meeting the morning on-time performance. Right. And we don't know what the afternoon performance is at all. It wasn't reported. There was a lot of discussion that seemed to convolute the conversation about transportation, including who are we transporting? Charter schools were thrown into the mix as if charter schools are on the same buses as kids who are attending Boston public schools. There's no mention of how many kids are actually on the bus. I saw a bus the other day driving around with one child on it. And there was a lot of discontent from school committee members. In particular, Lorena LaPera had some comments about buses not showing up and how that was frustrating to her as a parent, as well as other parents. It's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Because there are more cars on the road trying to get their kids on there because, again, it goes to, like, trust. Is this bus going to show up? Is my kid going to have time to eat breakfast at school? Is my kid going to arrive on time? for? There's a field trip tomorrow. Is my kid going to arrive on time mm-hmm. to join the field trip? Or are they going to miss out on this activity because the bus was late? And Jerry Robinson had a great question, too, we thought. When we say we have 89% on-time buses, what percentage of our students is that? Is that 89% of our students or what? Because, I mean, of our bus students, because I'm still wondering what percentage, what number of our kids are still not making it to school on time. And as we analyze it, is this, are there some schools or routes that are the chronic ones and, I, and I'm concerned mostly about those children and their families. And I well know the frustration of, you know, holding their breath on a daily basis. Is the bus going to show up or when it's going to show up, et cetera, and what we're trying to do to close those gaps. Right. So, so Jill, it's really interesting, this notion of like how many kids, so 89% on-time performance in the morning, how many kids are not getting to school on time in the morning? Right. And the answer is we have no idea. Right. No and Desi De- said that the district needs to be at a 95%. For the buses. For the buses, right. not so, for kids. Right, right. so we're right. clearly not meeting the goal for the buses, and we have no idea how many kids are impacted. To not know how many kids are on a bus, that's probably the first thing you want to do as a school district to understand your, your transportation system, is to try to figure out how many kids are actually riding. Well, and whether or not you're hitting every stop. But there's technology that would allow us to do this pretty simply. There is technology that would allow us to to know when every student gets on the bus, to know how many students are on the bus, to know how many students have gotten off the bus, and the timing of all of that. In fact, Jill, not to uh, bring up past work that I used to do in BPS, but this was a project I did years ago where we put transponders, Bluetooth chips on kids' backpacks, and we put a Bluetooth reader on the bus. And every time a student got on the bus, the parent was notified with a text message. And every time they got off the bus, the parent was notified with a text message. And parents loved this feature because they can know when where their student was when they're on the bus and when they're off the bus, particularly for students who need to go to the bus stop on their own. Right, because this is only 
for kids up until through sixth grade, yeah. right? And then seventh grade, they moved to the MBTA. Yeah. And and Jill, at this time, when when we were doing this work in BPS, we learned that the really like buses were maybe at the most forty percent full. And we also learned that they changed every day. So sometimes they were 20% full, sometimes they were 40% full, and it changed every morning and every afternoon. So it's really unpredictable. But what it did tell us was we run a very inefficient transportation system. Well, this is so this is now, Ross, what, like $120 million piece of the budget. And we're transporting kids who are in sixth grade and below. So there's there's a whole contingent of students that we're not even moving around with these monies, I think. We own the buses. The district owns the buses. But the system is run by a third party called Transdev. Yes. We have the most expensive yellow bus transportation system in the country. And clearly, it doesn't work well. Now, BPS contracts with Transdev. Technically, the bus drivers are employees of Transdev. Right. Okay. But BPS maintains a full transportation department. So they have a full managerial department. If you ever call BPS, you're calling BPS employees. Mm-hmm. That BPS does the routing. BPS does the monitoring. So there are really two management companies here, Jill. It is Boston Public Schools. And then Transdev has a small role, really, as the employer of these bus drivers. And the issue here is the BPS doesn't want to employ the bus drivers. There are advantages to BPS using Transdev to employ the bus drivers for human resource issues and for retirement issues and so on and so forth. And there was a question last night about why was there only one bidder on this management contract? And what I understand, you've only had one person, one one group, Transdev, come back to want to bid. You know, Jill, if you look back, BPS gave through their last contract negotiations in June of in this June, year, basically not said so long ago. forevermore, you, whoever the contractor is, they must use these drivers. Right. So there is no flexibility. They must use those drivers, which you could assume that any contract company coming in without the ability to really supervise the drivers or determine what they should do, you kind of feel like locked in there. So maybe there's that's the reason there was only one impl- one contract bid. Right. Well, right. Because your hands are tied and those drivers are will always have a job, regardless of if you, as the management company, think you should shrink the fleet or expand the fleet. They you, will always like have a job. Jo- yeah. They will always have a job, even if they drive 89% of the time. Yeah. Even if they skip students on the bus stops, they will always have a job. So it was interesting to me that, you know, the chair asked a question about why Transdev was the only one to respond to this when she was part of the vote. When you set up policy like this, these are the ramifications of the policy. And and another school committee member back in June pushed hard on this to say, aren't we setting up something where we're going to be competing against ourselves? Totally. That, so here it, we are. It, here we are. And this is, Jill, this is, this is why we do this podcast. Yeah. Because this is how policy is made. We get to the point, we forget what we decided a few months ago. We forget that conversation. And lo and behold, here we are today going, how did we get here? But we pointed well, this out. It's because what you decided last time. Right. Now, Jill, there was, I was really troubled last night on this transportation conversation. You could tell I'm a little bit upset about it. I'm very upset about this transportation issue. We're in November. Yeah. We're almost to Thanksgiving. We're almost to December. And we have probably hundreds, if not more, students not getting to school on time. This impacts students every day, mm-hmm. Our, particularly students with disabilities. They are missing class time. They are missing the opening of school. And we're not even talking about getting home at night. Mm-hmm. The, I, I know families whose kids are incredibly anxious every day at the end of the day, wondering if their bus will even come. Right? I just I know that students go hungry 
in the in the evening because they don't get home until after dinner. Mm-hmm. But nobody talks about this. Well, right? they also we, talked yesterday about kids worried that they would get to school too late to have breakfast because totally. we we know having you know great optics into the food services program that they're required to be shut down at a certain time. It's not like food is just waiting for kids when the buses don't show up, unfortunately. There there are no tangible solutions that we heard from the superintendent and her team on how to fix this. Yeah. And last night, we heard a couple of things. One, there was a rebid of the routes. So mm-hmm. every year, I believe in early November, the bus drivers all change mm-hmm. because they go, the, but the routes change a little bit, so all the drivers change. And so they talked about last night, that's that's a problem, right? But they're still going to do it because they say the bus the bus routes change and seniority rules and the, by seniority, but drivers get to choose which routes they drive. Right. We also heard these sort of like old excuses over and over again last night from BPS. Yeah. One of the old excuses was let's blame charter schools or let's blame those who don't go to BPS and say that because their schools start and end at different times and because we have to provide them transportation, it must be their fault. This this really seemed to tie school committee members' minds in a knot for a second. And it's like, just take a deep breath and and think about it. Those kids are not intermingled with Boston Public School students. This is just a, another set of schools that you're delivering students to, right? Like, it shouldn't be making anyone so crazy to throw in the word charter. And it feels like they were trying to create a bigger problem by saying words as opposed to just, you know, kind of defining the problem for what it is. You're absolutely right. The school system is required to bus Boston students, the city of Boston students. They are our students yeah. to their appropriate educational Well, the city is required, right? Correct, the city spends $120 million busing kids who live in the city to their appropriate schools. That is their job. And is not doing it 100% of the time. And by the way, it's not a new thing. Right. They've always been doing it. Right. So to raise this as like, well, this may be the reason buses are late. Right. That's not the reason. Right. And then, oh my goodness, Jill, I heard last night, we heard last night, start and end times. Yep. That it must be about the They're start bad. and end times. Yep. And if only we had schools start and end at clear time, designated times, like mm. 7.30, 8.30, 9.30, 1.30, 2.30, 3.30, 3.30, that if we did that, the system would be fixed. Right. And instead there are, what, 80 something different start and end times. But it's just another set of like things to throw in where because you don't have all the data as you're sitting there in a school committee meeting, you can't process what that means. It just seems like a really big number. And therefore it makes total sense that the whole thing's This is up. ridiculous. Yeah. This is about this. I won't get into this fully, Jill, but yeah. this start and end time thing is, is about efficiency and saving money. Right. It's not about getting kids to school on time. In mm-hmm. fact, if you had drivers truly drive at 730, 8:30, 9:30, 1:30, 2:30, 3:30, will they will probably be late right. to many schools, right. right? It was kind of ridiculous last night to hear that the excuses made was about start and end times. Let me tell you, Jill, what I think the main problem is. Okay. One, we have no idea who rides a bus mm-hmm. on any given day. Mm-hmm. We have no idea who's on the bus. We have no accountability for making sure that drivers actually pick students up at every stop. Mm-hmm. Parents don't know where their kids are. Mm-hmm. Again, going to accountability. But really, Jill, what's most important here is that we don't have schools close to home that our students can go to. The, the neighborhood school notion has never panned out or has we, not panned out for a very long time. We move our students up to grade six mm-hmm. in elementary grades mm-hmm. all over the city mm-hmm. for capacity reasons, for programmatic reasons, or because essentially the families say we want our kid to go to a school in a further distance away because they think it may be higher quality. Mm-hmm. We also move our high school students all around the city, particularly yeah. our students with disabilities, on yellow buses and we tend to send them 
to faraway places like Brighton High School, mm -hmm. which has fewer school age kids, but maintains a few high schools mm -hmm. in Brighton. Mm -hmm. So like we send kids all over the city. So we run a very inefficient system because we don't have high quality schools close to home. And Jill, this brings us to the special education presentation last night. Fundamentally, we have a massive problem in special education. It's broken system. And what we do is if a family comes and they get their child evaluated and their student has a disability, the school district will tell you, you must go to this school, however far it is from your home, because that school has a specialized program for your child. So, okay, let's back up for a second. So the Council of Great City Schools was hired by the district to do a report on special education. The district hired the Council of Great City Schools because it was required as part of the agreement with DESE. The only reason the school system produced a report last night was to meet the requirement from the state that they must produce a report last night on the state of special education. And for those who criticized the state intervention, I would like to just say like this was absolutely necessary because I don't think BPS, BPS hasn't talked about special education in years at school committee. So last night, we heard a report from the Council of Great City Schools. We've talked about this previously, about the Council of Great City Schools itself. Like, why were they the only vendor who bid on this contract? Why were they chosen? Potential conflict of interest as a membership-based organization. Mm -hmm. We won't get into that now. Let's get into the issue of, this, of what the report said. Mm -hmm. The Council of Great City Schools said BPS has a number of issues. First issue, a higher percentage of students with disabilities identified than compared to the state, about 3% higher than the rest of the state. Me meaning kids were potentially miscategorized. and Maybe. They, they have a higher percentage of students, about anywhere from 18 to 23% on any given year, of students with disabilities. This is higher than the state by about 3%. And Massachusetts has one of the highest, if not the highest, percentage of students with disabilities in the country. And some people talk about how this is just over-assessing and misdiagnosing or diagnosing more accurately than other places. I, I think we there's not actually like a grounded reason that there are more kids in Massachusetts who are put into special education it, it, brackets. It, it, than... it could be that Massachusetts does a better job identifying students. Yeah. It also may be that there's not enough supports for general education students. What we're seeing is in Boston, we see more black boys identified for special education than any, any other subgroup. Mm -hmm. It cannot be true that more black boys have special needs than others. Right. This is because our general education system, our regular education system is not supporting all of our students and they're failing subsets of our students. Not supporting them in what way? Academically, mm -hmm. social, emotionally, mm -hmm. right? So we basically say, if you don't make it in general education, the only other support for you is you must go to special education. You must have a disability if you're not being successful in a general education classroom. And special education in the city means, generally speaking, except for some inclusive schools, you're being put into a classroom that is separate. That is adult focused. So the, the way we categorize kids is the way we've categorized kids for decades. Mm -hmm. We basically make up names of classrooms and we say, okay, your disability, you may have a learning disability. We have teachers in that program. Those programs are assigned to certain schools around the city. And we tell your family, you must go to that school to get services. Sometimes, in many cases, those classrooms are multi-grade. So you may be in fourth grade and you'll be in a third, fourth grade classroom. For some reason, we don't care that students aren't getting grade level content. We place them in multi-grade classrooms 
And we send them to schools sometimes far away from their homeschool. Was there an originally a good reason for doing this? How did how did this all happen? It's all adult. It's all adult driven. It's right? just easier it's, to it's easier to manage. And somehow we're it's okay not to have access to grade level content and we're just gonna put you in a multi-grade classroom. As opposed to doing what? As opposed to saying that the student should remain in their homeschool mm -hmm. or go to school close to home, mm -hmm. that they should be included as federal law states in a least restrictive environment, so mm -hmm. with their general education peers, should be provided with the appropriate supports. So this is specialized instruction. This is accommodations of materials and instruction and potentially providing more adult support for that student in the inclusive classroom, in the general education classroom, to not remove that student from their neighborhood, from their peers, from their building to go to a sub-separate classroom that they never leave. So, and this is particular to this district. And interestingly, Michael O'Neill, who served on school committee for quite a while now and was chair of the committee for some time, it, he spoke up and said, we've seen this report before. It is some issues that we quite frankly have known about and talked about for years in Boston. And we have failed to correct them. And, you know, when I read through the report, your presentation tonight, Dr. Hart, and even some of your comments. In effect, you're saying we have issues with misidentification or identification of students. We have issues about lower outcomes for our students. We have issues in not strong enough monitoring. Um, but to quote your exact words, Dr. Hart, alarming to you, your peers across the company, across the country have transitioned to inclusive models, and we have not. There is nothing earth-shattering in this report, Jill. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was very similar to a report that was given, again, years ago, mm -hmm. when special education came up, and mm -hmm. it was about inclusive schools mm -hmm. and saying, how do we move to more inclusive schools? The same exact content was presented. We have an over-identification of students because we don't have appropriate general education supports. Some of our students with disabilities should not be in special education classrooms. They should be receiving supports in their general education classrooms, and that's called MTSS or RTI. This is called multi-tiered systems of supports or response to intervention. These are systems that are put into place where teachers work together to solve students' individualized needs. And then the school committee kept saying, what can we do? What do we do? What do we do? Which sounds like must have been what happened the last time this came up, which was quite a while ago. And so it feels like not a lot maybe has changed. And yet we're talking about a substantial number of students in this city. We have a new superintendent. Where should she start? So let me start by saying, again, the reason this came up last night was because the state required. Right. It wasn't that, going to come up. Correct. So to, to think that all of a sudden the district is going to say, now we're going to tackle special education is hard for me to understand that sense of urgency from what we watched last night. And what we know, right, is that this has to be, a, there has to be a sense of urgency around this. So Jill, here's what we know about inclusive schools. There are a number of school leaders, a number of autonomous schools as well, that have created inclusive environments. Mm -hmm. So they've done this despite what the district has told them to do. Because many adults in our buildings know that it's not okay to categorize our kids and to separate them from their general education peers. And just to be clear, you're talking, I mean, you have a lot of experience in this. You you were a leader of a school that moved that school to being fully inclusive. So you understand the nuances of, of what this takes. While, Jill, while we heard last night from the Council of Great City Schools, they mm -hmm. said, look, they said, first, 
make sure you have better general education supports, mm. deal with the overlap of multilingual learners and students with disabilities and figure out your metrics to how to make sure you're serving all students well. Then increase more inclusive practices and get rid of all these adult names mm -hmm. of classrooms that you assign students to. Then you should hire experts to help you do all these things. And the Council for Great City Schools said, move slowly, go really slow here because you want to do this right. Jill, as a school leader, when I went to the school that I led and it had multi-grade students in classrooms separated from their peers, mm -hmm. I said, I can't take this any longer. Mm -hmm. And I dismantled all of those classrooms the following year. Mm -hmm. We spent the first year doing professional development on how to serve any student with any disability in a fully inclusive setting. We thought the structure of adults in our building. We said, here's how we're going to do co-teaching in these classrooms. We moved classrooms so that classrooms could be combined together. We added interns and instructional support to mm -hmm. meet the needs of students. And then we redid IEPs at those team meetings to write that all the students should be in inclusive settings. And then we said any student with any disability should be able to come to our school. Mm -hmm. So if you are a parent of a student close by, and you may even have a sibling in our school, and your child has a disability, you should be able to come to our school and not get bused mm -hmm. to Brighton. Mm -hmm. And that was hard work. And was it expensive? It was the same price it was. <laughs> it was the same budget, Jill. So it was, it was, the same it was just, it was a matter of one, getting people to feel like they could support kids with any sort of need in a classroom, right? By, by doing professional development and then leading folks it, through a transition. We all, our, our team worked together to say, here's the vision of what inclusive education should be. That means all of us together, nobody separated from one another. And this notion of teamwork, that we are all going to work together to support each other in serving all students, mm -hmm. and the idea of community. Everybody should be able to come to the school regardless of what their learning needs may be. And that works. So the other thing that came up a couple of meetings ago was the notion of special ed and this, this idea from central office that all schools would become inclusive schools and that it was the responsibility of each school to decide how they were going to do that. There is some work to be done at central office to think through where should kids be and to work with the leaders of those schools to make sure that they have everything they need to move to an inclusive program. Yes. That, that is right, Jill. We've, and we've, we've done this before. In our district, we've had some of the historically most successful inclusive schools in the country. Books have been written about these schools. We know how to do this in, we have not figured out how to do it system-wide. And Jill, I would say, let's watch the McKinley School to see if people are serious yeah. about changing special education. Why? Because that school is the most concerning school. We have an, a, a, every problem with special education, over-identification of students, black and brown students in the McKinley School, particularly males that are assigned to this school that never leave the school in this restrictive setting because they're deemed as having emotional impairment is incredibly problematic. And those students deserve a, every opportunity to learn alongside their peers in a school close to their home. And watching that school will tell us if the system is is serious about taking this on. Right. I mean, this is this is really like the the right role for central office is is in supporting schools and making these dramatic changes and in, and in ensuring that there is a great leader. Like we need whatever number of schools you're left with after you reprogram this, but let's call it 115 schools. 
you need 115 great leaders. To, to create, to create a, a school culture where every student is accepted, where the right systems and structures are in place, where yeah. every student can be, their needs can be met, you need to start with great leaders. It's the most, I mean, it just feels like it's the most important thing and they have to be consistently great. So you either have to retain them for longer periods of time or you have to ensure that you're really good at hiring great leaders and incentivizing them to programmatically run schools the way that we want to see schools run. And, and you also need a central office to get out of the way. Yeah. You need a central office to not pretend that they're fixing the problem. Last night, Jill, we heard from central office leaders kind of saying, well, we're kind of doing all these things already. And that was the most concerning thing mm -hmm. to me last night. That was, they think that they Was are. that they think they're doing something. Yeah. When essentially, there was, this was mentioned last night, there needs to be a BPS 2.0. And we need to recreate the special education system in Boston. And it needs to be some, done with a sense of urgency. For anybody considering sending their child to school in Boston, they, they should know that the special education system is going to be fixed. And for any parent of a student who is in a sub-separate setting and with, without the ability to get out, mm. needs to know that their child has the ability to learn with their general education peers under federal law. So this is really, the, you know, the superintendent, I think, needs to pick up the ball on this one, right? This is critical to the infrastructure of the entire district. It should be a top priority for her. It's probably why Desi had it on their list, their checklist, right? To, to that point, Jill, we saw no numbers last night. We saw no, you know, sort of clear goals or measures. I would expect that we would see that in the in a future meeting. I'm hopeful yeah. that BPS would take this report, would turn it into clear goals with benchmarks. I'm hopeful of that. Yeah. If that is not done, I'm hopeful that Desi will step in and say, "Wow, our concern was right. This system is truly broken. If you can't provide the goals and benchmarks, we'll provide them to you and we'll provide the technical assistance to help you get there." So Jill, also last night Two other things happened. We had two union contract votes. Mm -hmm. So this is our food service workers got a new contract as well as our bus monitors. Both of them have a pretty substantial increase in wages. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this will attract more people to each of these positions. There's multiple vacancies open in both the food service union worker positions and the bus monitor positions. So hopefully this new these new wages and the settlement of the contract attracts more people to these jobs. And while they're being attracted to these jobs, we should make it easier to go through the process of being employed by Boston Public Schools, right? Yes, th there like, is. Let's yes. just clean that up a bit, especially, you know, I don't know. I it just, I find it so, it, it, we have heard so many stories about how troublesome it is to apply uh, to work in a cafeteria. Yeah. Like, why is that so difficult? We should definitely figure out how we streamline uh, access to those positions. But it is great that our wages, the wages have increased. Yeah, no, that's jobs. that's good and smart. And then, Jill, just just one other comment. Uh, last night, a public comment, a very strange thing happened. We only had four people at public comment last yeah, night. Yeah, right. And you may ask, why is that? Have we? Has everyone got exhausted? Or people just feel like their voices aren't being heard? Maybe. It may also be because the superintendent has been out in the community having community meetings and community forums. Maybe, hopefully, parents feel like their voices are being heard by the superintendent and her team, and they don't feel like they have to go to the school committee. Now, that's we'll see if this continues. It may be a good thing. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's certainly a good thing because the meeting ends a little bit earlier. But, it, it, but if there are issues, people should feel like they can go to school committee and have their voices be heard. So hopefully it is not that people are, are feeling like they're giving up. And hopefully it's just because they feel like their voices are heard in a different outlet. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. 
We want to hear from you. If you have concerns about how BPS is serving your child or your family, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. And if you'd like to share a thought that we may use in a future episode, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-261-5904. And one final note, the terms of two school committee members, Chair Jerry Robinson and Mr. Tran expire at the end of this year. This week, the mayor's office began soliciting applications for anyone who would like to be appointed to those two seats. If you are interested in applying, click the link in our blog. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.